Welcome to another episode of Congo Kids Life Stories, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. In episode 26, I shared my journey of hunting in Central Africa as a young boy up until I was in college. I started with a homemade slingshot, then moved to a BB gun, then to a Sheridan brand air pump pellet gun, I believe it was the Blue Streak model, and then on to 22 rifles and 12 gauge shotguns. I hunted small birds and lizards with my slingshot and BB gun. I then went for larger birds like crows, pigeons, hawks, guinea fowl, hornbills, and forest pheasant with my pellet gun. Then in high school, I moved to hunting antelope and monkeys with a 22 rifle and shotgun. The episode discussed the nemesis that birds and animals had on the gardens of the people. These gardens were the only source of food for the Congolese. So when monkeys, hornbills, guinea hens, and other birds raided their corn and maniac gardens, it meant these people didn't eat. Or hawks and falcons would eat the chicks and ducklings that the villager was trying to raise for eggs or meat. So when I did shoot something, it was eaten, and it was probably the only protein for the week, as the main nutrition was corn and manioc and manioc leaves, which are similar to spinach. A lot of starch. Hunting was a challenge and something I enjoyed doing. I learned much about the jungle and grasslands from just being out there for hours and hours on end, as well as what my Congolese friend or hunting guide taught me while we were out on the hunt. It was the thrill of the hunt, the adventure, being out in the jungle in Congo. I mean, how much more adventurous can you get than that? This isn't hunting in the woods of Minnesota or the mountains of Colorado. This was in Congo, the heart of Africa. I also learned perseverance to just keep going on, regardless of how tired I was from hiking hours and hours on end through grasslands, through thick jungles, crossing streams, and walking miles and miles when hungry and thirsty because there wasn't another choice. It helped make me tough and to ignore discomfort and accept disappointment. It also provided some tasty food for me and my family and for my Congolese friends who lacked meat and protein in their normal diets. I also gained considerable knowledge of the jungle, the vegetation, the animal and plant life, and understanding the sounds. Even now, when hiking in a remote area, I feel like I'm in my element. I'm comfortable, as I grew up out in the wild. But it was the friendships and memories that have stuck with me more than the number of guinea fowl or hornbills I shot through the years. Memories of experiences shared with a good friend or a good hunting guide will remain with me. I look back with fondness at my times out hunting, regardless if I got blisters on my feet, was parched for thirst for hours on end, and had hunted all day and not shot a thing. It really didn't matter then, and it doesn't matter now. It was just great to be out there hunting, hoping, and enjoying everything about the nature experience. So today's episode will be sharing memories of hunting experiences by a bunch of people. Similar to the last episode, you will hear about shooting animals and birds. I can assure you that the stories will not be told in a graphic or raw manner. The stories will be about chimpanzees, hippos, monkeys, birds, and even some mysterious creatures that may be real, or they may be mythical. You will hear about them, and then you can decide if you believe they exist. 
Dan Noren, a professor at a university in Michigan and a friend of mine growing up, kicks off today's episode of Hunting Stories in Congo. He shares a story with a few twists and turns. Here you go. When I was in eighth grade, we were up at Wasola Mission Station, which is the farthest you could go in the Ubangi, way out. I mean, it was in the sticks, right? And so a great place. I love Wasola. And so one afternoon, I got the pastor's son, and he said, yeah, we're going to go monkey hunting. So we went down the hill, and we just got started, and I got stung by a really, really bad caterpillar to start off, and just burns like nothing. It's like getting stung by 10 bees all at once. So we started off, and then I shot a big monkey, and it got stuck in the tree, and we couldn't get it down, so he sent his little brother up the tree. He was just going to say, hey, watch out for grabbing broken branches, dead branches, and sure enough, his brother, all of a sudden we hear crack, and down through the foliage comes his kid, and he falls on his back right at our feet, and he's knocked out. I, th- I thought he was dead at first, and, and his brother goes, yeah, and he shakes them all up, and crazy, crazy, and, and the guy comes to, and his eyes are rolling back in his head, but then he comes to, but he can't walk, so we had to start carrying him, and about then, it started to rain, and we didn't even get the monkey, and then it got dark, and he had taken a shortcut to go across his other path, well, we finally came to the path. We were so turned around. We didn't know if we should go left or right. And this dark already, and we're carrying a kid who's wounded. And we started, and our flashlight, we had a flashlight, but the batteries are dead. And we started walking. We walked in the dark for four hours and crossed streams, carrying this kid on our back. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was so dark, you know. Finally, we came out of this little sobe, a little savanna glade, and the moon was just coming up. And I thought, wow, look. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen because it was so dark for like three, four hours. And I said, listen, uh, we need to say a quick prayer here. I said, Lord, get us out of this forest, please. You know, we don't want to die out here. And there, <laughs> sure enough, we walked 10 minutes. We came out to a village at 2 o'clock in the morning. And we knocked on a guy's mud hut there. And, and, he, and he was saying, hey, you guys, you must be evil spirits. Just get out of here. And, you know, you're, you're bugging me. You guys are evil spirits. There's nobody out there at 2 o'clock in the morning. And then we, no, no, I said, this is Pastor Fiocona's kid, me, Norin's son. I don't know who you are. You guys are spirits. Just get out of here. You know, <laughs> so the next hut, finally, somebody came out and looked at us. Oh, these are real people. And they just walked out of the jungle where people go in and don't, and don't come out. And there had been the story we found out later. A guy went hunting back in that same jungle and got so lost back there, he never came out. And they found him months later. He was dead by a tree. He ran out of food and just died out there. So we got back to Wasolo Mission Station and all in one piece, never got our monkey. And the kid, he did better. He had a, like a half broken hip or something, but he, he was young. And so he did, but that was a crazy, crazy hunting experience. John Lundquist, also a friend of mine, chanced upon a very rare animal. I've never seen one in the wild. Here's his story. Well, the only time I actually saw one was Christmas Day, 1978 when I was back there teaching at Benga after I got done with college. But anyway, um, I was invited up to Goyongo, where I had, which had been my home growing up. When we weren't at boarding school, that was where we lived. And it was largely forest, almost completely forest around it. And um, on Christmas Day, I went up to the water source at the base of this big escarpment, this big plateau tableland, through the forest about a half-hour walk with Edstrom kids and Wood kids. And I decided to go back and get some more film because I used up the film that I brought with me. 
and they were going to be there for a while. So I had time to do the hour round trip. And when I started going back, I thought to myself, you know, it's been it's been about five years since I've been in these in this forest here. And it was so wonderful to be back. And I thought, I'm just going to try my forest skills and see how quietly I can walk. It was dry season. The forest floor was covered with a carpet of dead leaves, dry dead leaves, several inches thick. But I was on a path. And I just thought, I'm going to see if I can walk really silently and see if I can become aware of any game or birds before they're aware of me. So that's what I was doing. And I was not far from the water source. And all of a sudden, to my right, about 20 feet, I'm guessing, there was a hump. And I turned and looked, and it was a chimp coming down out of a small tree. And all I could see was its back and part of its left arm, which was reaching up at the point where it hit the ground. And that thing took off, and here's what's amazing to me. It took off through this carpet of dead leaves, dry dead leaves, and it did not make a sound. And I don't understand how it could do that. So that was an amazing thing. And so when I hear the song, I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, I often think, I saw a chimp on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. Another hunt with a very strange antelope, as explained by John Lundquist. Well, I think what's the best story is when I went buffalo hunting with Paul, um, when we were out for four days and three nights. The first night when we were really hungry there and we, uh, one of the guys, I don't remember if it was Paul or one of the African guys shot the monkey and that was what we ate mostly that night. But a couple of the guys were out and they shot an antelope that I never imagined existed. And if somebody had tried to tell me about it, I would have thought it was a myth or a joke. This was an antelope similar in size to a dick dick, maybe a little bit bigger. I can't remember its name right now. If I remember right, its coat was a sort of a reddish brown, and it was stocky. It was sort of like a pit bull of the antelope world. It was built heavily, and it had needle-like saber teeth. It was like a saber-toothed tiger, and they were very thin. They were like needles. For the life of me, I mean, it, anybody tried to tell me that I'd ever encounter an antelope with saber teeth, I don't think I'd be likely to believe that. I mean, it'd take a lot, I'd, it'd take a lot to get me to believe that. And then to top it all off, this antelope had white meat. And I think it was all white meat. We ate it. And see, this is, I'm so grateful to God. We, we, <laughs> we cooked the meat up that night. And then we were carrying it with us for the next two days. And I think we finished it maybe on the last morning or maybe the last, the, the third night. And without refrigeration. And we ate this and didn't get food poisoning. And thank you, God. So that's the strangest animal that I ever encountered that any of us shot on a hunt. As in most countries, people who spend time in the woods or the outdoors often claim that there are creatures unlike whatever we've known. Here in North America, we have Sasquatch, a.k.a. Bigfoot. In Tibet and Nepal, there's the Yeti, 
the abominable snowman. In Ireland, there are leprechauns. These are mysterious creatures that have become part of folklore and mythology. These creatures are almost never seen, and somehow manage to never be photographed or caught, so any mystery about them can be cleared up and the truth revealed. Well, in Congo, we have what's called Makola. That's the Lingala name of these creatures. The English name is Australopithecine. These are said to be creatures that humans came from and lived mainly in Africa. These creatures are about three to three and a half feet tall, have the body configurations of a very small man, and have long, reddish-brown hair. A hunter in Kenya back in the 1930s was said to have shot one while hunting and did a drawing of it and wrote a fairly good description. It matches almost to a T what is described as Australopithecine. John Lundquist shares a story about these creatures near Lake Quata. Here's John's story. But he said that this guy shot one in or near the dig at Quata. And he shot one and he said that it was wounded, I think. And two companions came and gathered it up and carried it away. Description, but if I remember right, they're relatively small, about maybe three to four feet tall. And they're a little bit like smaller versions of, say, Bigfoot or something. They they look a lot like small people, but are covered in some amount of hair. And they look sort of like halfway between cavemen and apes, but in a small version. And my best guess is that they are indeed real. I don't think this guy made that up. I don't think whatever. I can't remember the specific reasons why he didn't shoot again, but I think it was partly that he felt creepy, like he might be killing other humans. Dan Noren has a story about Makola. At one time, my brother Paul and I were hunting out at Quada. And here again, we were, we were with Coston Makunua. And we came into a patch of these bumas, these kind of, uh, I forget what you call them in English. They look like Aaron's rod kind of plants. Then they have a little red fruit on the bottom that's real stringent, but sweet, but full of seeds. And people like to eat them. Mujungus like to eat them, the monkeys that kind of run around the ground a lot. These little fruit grew near the ground from the plant and were maybe four to five inches long with a red skin. These little fruit pods were sour to the taste, but good. The inside was sort of like how a pomegranate looks, but the seeds were really small. And just to let you know how powerful my memory is of eating these little fruit pods, I'm salivating right now just thinking about the sour taste. And I'll bet that any other kid that grew up in Congo with me and ate the little red mbomas, or fruit, are doing the same. But back to the story. And Makulas like to eat them. And we came in there, all of a sudden, Poston just went kind of white. And he's like, whoa. He was looking around on the ground. He says, hey, guys, we got to get out of here. And my brother says, why? He says, you see all this, all the evidence of the fruit eaten here? My brother says, yeah, it's monkeys. No, no. He says, these are monkeys. These are makula. Makula were here in the 80s. We got to get out of here. So we got out of there. But I believe in them. I think they're out there. So, makula. Could they really still be alive in the jungles of Congo? Could they really be smart enough to evade hunters and maybe only be seen or encountered a few times in many, many years? Or are Makola just a myth and village folklore? I know what I believe. I know what John and Dan believe. What do you believe? 
One area we haven't touched on too much in these hunting episodes is the danger we were exposed to. Here's one story from John Lundquist that is a good reminder of the real danger that was around us in the jungles and grassland. So when Paul and I went buffalo hunting on the third night, we were back down by the local river and well, for whatever reason, it did a loop like an oxbow. And it was only about maybe 20 yards across the base of it. It came down and turned to the right and then went around the bend. And this river was probably about, I'm guessing maybe 40, 50 feet wide in general. And when it hit that oxbow, it's going to dig into the bank there. So the bank went straight down there. So it's pretty deep right there. And there was a little hunter's shelter there. And when it came time for sleeping, there wasn't room under that little shelter for two of us. And I volunteered to be one of the guys to sleep outside the shelter. And I slept closest to the river on the upstream side there. I was on my back. And if I rolled over to the left side and reached out with my arm so that I was now flat on my chest, my hand would go over the bank. So I was about four, four and a half feet from the bank, if I calculate right. This is probably about 8.30, quarter to nine, nine o'clock, somewhere in there. And just as we were going to sleep, I was just in that point where you're going from awake to asleep, a hippo came up right there. And my guess is that the hippos probably came up on this area routinely. And it came up and, you know, they let the air out of their nostrils. It sounds kind of like air brakes on a truck on one of the semis. So there was this big, really loud, right there. And, of course, we all jumped up, but I was the one who was closest to it. And thank you, God, the hippo decided not to come up on the bank. After we settled down, I got the double-barrel shotgun and kept it by me for the rest of the night. But I look back on it and I'm kind of amazed because I just went right back to sleep. And the whole setup kind of amazed me because there I am sleeping with tall grass leading into bushes, leading into the forest, just a few feet from my feet. And there are poisonous snakes all over in there. And that kind of tall grass area is a perfect place for them. And I wasn't tense. I look back on it all and it was just normal life. But... <laughs> I look back on it now and wonder about it. Here's a story about hunting for a hippopotamus as told by Bob Widman. Bob was a great hunter in high school and a few years older than me. I always wanted to be like Bob as he had a cool Yamaha 100cc motorcycle. In fact, one day when I was about 9 or 10 years old, I went up to his motorcycle to admire it. Well, I leaned up too close as I approached it from the left side. Suddenly, I heard a sizzle, and I felt a pain on my left leg. I had burned a huge spot about three inches in diameter on the exhaust pipe. Boy, did that take a while to heal. I can actually still see the scar if I look hard enough. But Bob's dad, Harvey, was a legendary hunter as he'd been in Congo in the late 1940s and 50s and had shot antelope, buffalo, and all sorts of other big game. We are going along, you know, it, it got to be probably we had left in the dark and we got there just before the sun came up. We coasted down the river. We were going with the flow of the river and we came to a backwash 
where there was a bay off the side of the river, and sure enough, there were two hippos there. So we swung in around behind them, and the African was paddling real slow with, with a big paddle. And I was laying up in the prow of the canoe with the 375 H&H with the two-and-a-half-power weaver scope on my elbows with the gun sticking over the just the front of the canoe. And the hippos were coming up. Their head would come up, and then they would go down. And I got the crosshairs as they came up right on the back of the head of one. And I flipped off the safety, and I thought, next time he comes up, I'm going to shoot. And I heard my dad go, next time he comes up, shoot. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> so uh, I was ready. And I thought, all I have to do is squeeze it up. I pulled up the slack in the trigger. And as his head broke water, I started squeezing. And, you know, everything went black. You know, the gun roared and kicked back. And I heard the bullet connect, you know, boom, whack, you know. And the hippo rolled over and started thrashing. And it was roaring and opening and closing its mouth. It was quite a deal. The African, meantime, was trying to get the 200 started. And it wouldn't start, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's going. He pulled it out of the water eventually, and there was a fishing net in it, and I think it was a tilapia weighing across the boat motor. And there were three of us in the canoe, and we wanted to try and hit the thing again, but we were turned sideways in the canoe, so it was rocking back and forth. And we did our best, you know, boom, 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 all the guns go off. We all missed. Uh, the one thing that was real interesting to me. I've never seen it before or since, but we were sitting real close to the surface of the water and the 375 bullet, when it hit the water, it skipped and it started skipping shallower and shallower and shallower and was arcing the direction of the, the rifling. And so it arced to the left it, and it eventually got smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, it probably skipped 20, 30 times. So we all reloaded again and boom, 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 you know, we all missed. And again, you know, the bullet skipped. It was fascinating. I think I got more out of that bullet skipping than just about anything else, that bigger rifle. And so uh, the other hippo was headed up river, thankfully. And uh, the first hippo that I shot sunk. And we headed into shore, sat there, and my dad was saying, Maybe I should take my shirt off and go out there and feel around down for it. You know, and I was like, oh, man, Dad, you know, there's crocodiles here. Give it a rest, you know. <laughs> yeah, don't be doing anything like that, you know, because there's blood down there and all of that good stuff. And so we were all kind of worn out by this time. It was a little afternoon. And the Africans wanted some meat, so they wanted me to shoot them a monkey. And we heard some monkeys, so I went back in there and shot a monkey. And I was coming out of the forest, and there was a fairly distinguished, tall African man sitting there, and he said, he said, your hippo's out there. And there was a bump in the water, and it had bloated and floated up. So we got it in, and we were in the middle of nowhere, you know. It was like nobody's around, you know, be an easy butcher here. And all of a sudden, canoes started arriving. We got another canoe, and we... We lashed the two together. Anyway, he came by and he said, uh, your dad's saying very quietly head over to the canoe because people were swinging machettes and cutting meat and it was getting way out of control. 
So we managed to kind of sneakily get into the canoe, and at this point in time, we pushed off, and the guy fired up the 200, and we started going, and people were actually coming after us, paddling after us. We headed out to the middle of the river while those the two prows of the canoes funneled water up, and it was coming up into both canoes. <laughs> and Bruce started yelling, we're sinking, we're sinking, we're going down, you know. <laughs> so we, we had a little space between us and the people behind us, and we got over to the far side of the river. By the time we got going, the people that were paddling after us kind of gave up. Anyway, we got back up to Nunez's place. Uh, we we couldn't figure out how to get the head up the bank because it was about 10, 12 feet high. So we tied a rope onto it and hooked it up to the bumper hitch and drug it up and then got it into the back of the truck along with the three quarters. We wound up back at the mission station. It was New Year's. And after that, one of my, my favorite memories was a delegation of people showed up and they had some red bark and they said, bring your son out here and said, we, we want to make him our hunter. And they rubbed red bark on my wrist and had a little ceremony. Very solemn, you know, and very, very much an honor. I remember when Bob shot that hippo. He wanted to get the teeth out of the jaw to use for ivory carving. They took the head, put it in a 55-gallon barrel of water, and boiled it for three days to loosen the teeth to get them out of the jaw. This was almost 50 years ago, and I still remember that. I'd mentioned Harvey Widman, Bob's dad, being a legendary hunter when game was much more plentiful in our area. Harvey also hunted with Cully Edstrom in the 1950s and had many harrowing tales of their hunts and experiences. Both Harvey and Cully have passed away, but I've asked James Edstrom, Cully's son, and also a good childhood friend of mine that is a high school teacher in Chicago, to share one of the experiences his dad and Bob's dad shared. My dad, Carl Edstrom, used to tell us many hunting stories. Many of them were with his good friend, uh, Uncle Harvey Woodman. These were probably early to mid-1950s. One of my favorites was one of a buffalo hunt that they were on. Imagine my dad, Uncle Harvey, and an African hunter walking back from hunting buffalo late in the evening as the sun begins to set. It gets dark very quickly there, and you can imagine them walking probably along a just a single path, carrying their rifles, and it becoming dark very quickly. And they knew there were buffalo all around. And they started hearing the buffalo, uh, sounds of buffalo around them. And the buffalo started to stampede. And they had no idea where the buffalo were, but they could hear them beginning to stampede. And they realized that they were in grave danger. And there was really nothing to do because they couldn't see the buffalo. But Harvey reached into his pocket, had remembered that he had some safety matches. And so he grabbed as many as he could, cupped his hands, and lit those matches, held them above his head. And that little bit of light in that dark African sky was enough to spook the buffalo. And they, the buffalo went around them 
and they were spared. And I think it's a wonderful image every time I think of light scattering darkness. And I think about that time when uh, Dad and Uncle Harvey were hunting buffalo. And it's a wonderful image and story. Here's a story, as told by Bob Widman, about a monkey and an eagle called a ziki. Another memory I have, I don't know if you've heard of what a ziki is. It's an, basically an African harpy. And we had a teacher that wanted to hunt monkeys. And so we went out on the road to Zulu Falls. But we kind of stopped, and there was a village there, and the Africans said that there were monkeys there by a, by a corn garden. And so we headed out behind the huts, and I heard this screeching, these monkeys making screeching sounds. I, I couldn't quite even process it. I had never heard anything like it. And I thought, well, this is really strange. I wanted my teacher to get a monkey, so he had a 12-gauge shotgun, and he was with the African in front of me, so I let them go down the path. And... Uh, a few minutes later, I heard the 12-gauge go off, you know, kaboom, you know, and then I heard the monkey falling through the leaves and hit the ground. I thought, well, there goes that, you know, hunting's over this morning, so, you know, everything around with that 12-gauge going off is going to know we're here. So I headed off the path on my own to see if I could see anything, and I also had a 12-gauge. I walked probably 15 yards. And all of a sudden, a big bird jumped up off the floor of the forest and started beating its wings, and it flew about 20, 30 yards from me and sat on a branch. It wasn't even afraid of me. It just turned and looked at me. And I, I figured it was an eagle. You know, I didn't know what kind. So I pulled up and shot. Boom, you know, down it went. Well, the Africans that were with my teacher came over, and as I was walking up to it, it was Ziki, and they... They got all excited and they, they lifted its feet. There was blood on its feet. And they said, where, where did it come from? You know, and I pointed where it took off. We went over there and there was a dead monkey on the floor of the forest. And it had four holes in its chest, one on one side of its rib cage and one on the other. And the Ziki had nailed this monkey. And that's why they were screeching the way they were. So that was a real interesting experience. Dan Noren shares another story that isn't so much about what they shot, but all the crazy stuff that happened to them. Listen. My other favorite one was with Paul Oberg that you know about in 1978, our senior year. We decided to go hiking off to Monga Falls, which was a two-day walk. And I mean big walks, like eight hours a day kind of walks. So the first morning we left at 4 o'clock. We had four guys with us carrying our luggage and all kinds of tents and crazy things. We got, we were just coming up to this hill of kind of a monga there, just a big forest on the hill, you know, and uh, they call it a ngonda. And I looked off and, I, and one of the Africans says, hey, look over there. And we saw something in the tree. He says, it's a koi, it's a leopard. And Paul, we were all crazy. The what in the world is a leopard in the tree there? And then there were red river hogs trying to tear the tree down because a leopard had killed one of the red river hogs. And then we were so excited and crazy. Paul Oberg says, no, that's a Norn. That's a lion. I said, what? No. He says, Norn, get your bullet. And I had my bullets wrapped up in a sock in my pocket for, yeah, tell me, I'm not, I'm a hunter, right? We're buffalo hunting. I didn't even have the bullets. By the time I got the bullet out, all the foam bullets, all the red river hogs had run away, and the, jeopard, the leopard leaped out of the trees like a 50-foot leap, shoo, and ran off. And then we, we chased them all, and we almost got up to get a shot with the foam bullets, but 
they all got away and everything got away. <laughs> then we got way out to the falls and met this crazy guy called Gonzenga. He was huge. He was 6'5", all muscle, and all he wore was a little tiny pair of shorts. And he marched around and he ate coal on us all day long. So he was just strung out high on caffeine. And he had three huts out there, each hut for a different wife. And then Paul Wilberg and I sat down around the fire with about with our four carriers that carried all our stuff out. And then he went around Gonzenga and offered each of us a cola nut. And they had told us, don't say thank you to Gonzenga. Gonzenga doesn't like to say thank you because if you say thank you, you're basically telling him, oh, I'm surprised, so surprised that you're such a nice guy and so hospital. Of course, the first guy he gives a cola nut to is Paul Wilberg. And Paul Wilberg says, merci. Oh, and Gonzenga flew into rage. He just about was going to grab by the throat and shake him, you know. And Paul was like, huh, they got to me. And I said, merci. <laughs> we were in big trouble. Then he said, okay, guys, we're going hunting. They hadn't shot anything at that, but we're going hunting. Okay. Okay. And so I had Bob Thornblum's 300 Magnum, and we're going to go hunting. So we go off. We go down in the jungle, and this little boy is along with us, and we come to a coconut tree. I'd never seen a coconut tree. Hey, the little kid climbs the tree and he's throwing down colonists. So we had about like, like a bushel of colonists. I don't know how many colonists all over the place. Then, then we came to a little creek and Gonzaga says, okay, here, give me your gun. He grabs my gun and he puts it down by the edge of the creek. And then he takes mud from the creek and he sprinkles it on the gun. And he says some kind of an incantation in, in Banza that I didn't know what was going on, but I'm thinking, this is some kind of a good luck charm he's doing. And I, well, I'm not going to fight with Gonzenga. So I took the gun back. We walked up out of the hill. He says, there's your animal. I said, I'm looking out like 100 yards. Where's my animal? It's right there. Oh, sure enough. They were literally two nda, which are oribi antelope. They're like a small white-tailed deer standing 10 feet away. And it's like they were looking straight at us. And on hindsight, it's like some big invisible being had a hold of them by the ears and was holding them right in front of us. I mean, yeah, seriously. And so I just, boom, and down went the one. And later I thought about it, and one of the guys was with us, Ecoli. Ecoli Pierre said, you know what, what he did? I said, no, he said, he made an appeal to the small god or the small G of the Zamba around here. He's some kind of a deity, a little deity, and said, we want successful hunting. <laughs> and we walked up the hill. Literally, these animals looked like they were held by their ears right in front of me. So we got that. Then we went all the way out to Monga the next day, and we, and we slept in this little kind of hut on top of a hill. It wasn't even a hut. It was just like a, the makeshift kind of, well, it just had some palm trees over a stick kind of structure. And we slept on these old calicpas, these old uh, really, really raunchy beds, hard as nails. And we got up in the morning, and we had ticks, elephant ticks all over us, elephant tick bites. So we were just, just hundreds of them. And they itched for months after that, by the way. <laughs> I don't think they caused any major disease, but they messed up our skin so bad. Then we went down to this big jungle and came to the waterfalls. And they said there was a big python that lived behind the waterfalls. But an Olberg and I went, oh, we're going to go swimming anyway. So we were swimming in the waterfalls and came out. And on the way down, we saw some big sombos again, red river hogs. And Paul Olberg was kind of stalking them. Got closer and closer. I said, Paul, oh, shoot, you're getting really close. I want to get close. <laughs> he got so close. Finally, the goofy, the one hunter, his name was Sumba, by the way. Old Sumba had a poopoo gun, an old muzzleloader. He got so close to the Sumbo, he shot. But by, by the time he shot, 
he was gun was pointing down, so all his baruti, all his all his lead balls rolled out, so he just shot the thing with powder. I think he burned the Sombo's butt. He was so close, he burned the red hog's butt. They all ran away. In all these stories, the hunter is usually victorious. The hunter gets the prey, and the hunter and his family gets to eat meat for the next few days in most cases. But what if the prey is bigger than you? What if it turns on you? Next up is a story from Jeff Dangers. Jeff was in Congo for many years, having grown up there and was a big hunter through his youth and into his adulthood. Jeff is now retired, living in Southern California. But here's a story about Jeff and a buffalo. By the way, wounded buffalo are said to be the most dangerous creatures on earth. Well, this was back in 1982, and it was near Christmas time, and we were going to get some special food for Christmas. And so I took six of the guys, the uh, students, and they got in my pickup. It was a Toyota, took off to a place to go hunting. And it was about three hours drive. And we saw some tracks across the road. Um, Buffalo had gone across the road. There were some cow pies there. And uh, so we stopped the truck, got out, and started down the hill. It was a, a, a long, steep hill, several hundred, hundred yards down. So the tracks of the buffalo were going down in that direction. We followed them down. There would be areas where they had stopped to eat and wiggling around, and we knew that the buffalo were in that area, but we couldn't see them. Area. It was just me and this one hunter. And uh, so we saw those canes moving around, and we got closer and just waited till we could see them. And uh, then we, I saw one buffalo. I could just see his head and his shoulder, his, his shoulder. And uh, I shot it and heard a thump as it hit it and it disappeared. And then all of the, there were quite a few buffalo. There were probably 20 different buffalo in that area right down in front of the jungle. And they all took off to the left along the edge of the jungle. Uh, there was a hill, an anthill. It's actually a termite hill. There in Africa, in Congo, we have lots of termites. And the termites make big hills that can be three to six foot high, and there was this big one that was about 100 yards away, and it was covered with grass, and some of the buffalo went up on top and over the hill, and then one went up the hill and, and stood there, and I shot, heard a thump, and I knew I hit it, it disappeared over the hill, and then I heard a rumble behind, beside me, uh, below me on the uh, in front of the jungle and the buffalo that I had wounded came running at me and before I was able to shoot it it hit the gun, knocked it out of my hand it flew through the air it hit me in the chest and the, uh, my left leg knocked me down uh, thumped on me and, and it got up and headed toward the jungle again and I, my helper my hunter friend uh, he got my gun as it flew through the air and he brought it to me and just about 
the time just when it got to me, uh, that buffalo came at me again, and I shot it, and it went down near my feet, and uh, that was it for that buffalo. And so the guys from that were up on the middle of the hill, they came rushing down to, to see what was going on, and they saw the dead buffalo, and I told them about the other one that was up over the hill. And so a couple of them stayed there with me. And What an amazing story about Jeff Danger's surviving a buffalo attack. He was gored on his leg and his chest, and fortunately was able to drive home and get medical treatment. He had a limp for a while, but now he's okay. We usually shoot, and if we're lucky or a good shot, we hit our target. Here's a story about hitting multiple targets by Tom Peters, another childhood friend of mine. Well, I had done several different hunts out there before this particular hunt, but I had never shot a shotgun before. I'm pretty sure it was my junior year, which would have been like the spring of 76, with John Aiken with uh, Rick Peterson, Phil Faulkner, and then Tom Belay and myself. So we get there in the morning. I'd sent out Tom Belay to scope out where the guinea fowl were, the, these awesome birds. Man, they, they're awesome meat. Great stuff. And so he had spent the night out there. And this was past going again out towards Businga Road and then back in to the to the left. And he had found a whole bunch of them. You could hear them back there. The thing about those congas, those guinea fowl, they had a very distinct noise. Like this, you know, you could hear them out there. So the five of us headed out, and then a couple of villagers too to help. And about half an hour, 45 minutes into the hunt, we decided we'd, we'd split up because they kept moving. They would hear us coming or something, and they kept moving. So uh, Rick and I went with Tombole one direction, and John and Phil Faulkner with some of the other Africans went another direction. So we're walking along through the Sobe, through the grasslands, probably another 20 minutes or so, and Tombole says, okay, you know, be quiet. So we could see some probably about 60, 70 yards from us. And so Rick says, hey, you take the shotgun this time. So I take the shotgun. They had quizzed me on how to use it. I'd never used one before. And so he stays there, and then Tombole and I creep up within about 40 yards of the guinea fowl. And I could see there was a hedgerow or something. And there were a bunch of them on the other side of that hedgerow. And he said, see that one over there? He said, that one with the head sticking up. And they got this distinct white color on their head, so you can see them very easily. He said, you aim for that one. He says, I'm going to crawl up to the hedgerow. And when I signal to you, you shoot. I said, okay. So he crawls up in front of me, but off to the left. And he's got a machete, okay? And so he's sitting there. He looks up over the hedgerow, and he gives me the signal. So I raise the gun, and I shoot at that head of that one. And, of course, the kickback on the gun was something I wasn't totally used to, only shooting 22s before that. 
So it sort of startled me. But as soon as I shot, Tombale was up and running with his machete, and he got two that were on the ground, and then there was one, I remember, it flew up. It must have gotten it somewhere in, like, the leg or something, and so its wings are still working. It flew up, and he smacked the, <laughs> he smacked the side of the head of that conga, that guinea fowl, with the flat edge of his machete and brought it down. But it had been hit by the, the shot. But it was about a 40-yard shot, and there was probably, once they all flew up, there was probably 40 in that flock, and we got three of them in that one shot. So Rick comes running, he goes, oh, man, that's awesome, like this. And so it was a great hunt. I ended up getting another one with a 22 out of a palm tree on the way back, so I got four that day altogether. John picked off some, Rick, so it was a good day. We gave some to the villagers, and I think we ended up with seven or eight that we brought back to the dorm and, and had them for lunch. So great, great hunt, man. Not bad for a first time with a shotgun, too. So while the previous episode shared about my journey of growing up hunting, and I had a few stories to elaborate on the overall journey, this episode was a whole bunch of stories from various people that had fun, surprises, twists of fate, good luck, bad luck, and are forever ingrained in the memories of the storytellers. It was a lot of fun hearing these stories from so many people, and all of them were friends of mine from my childhood. Each story had its own set of twists and turns. Another interesting observation is that after so many years since these hunts occurred, the specifics and details of the memories are forever burned into the minds of these storytellers. Remember, these hunts were between 40 to 50 years ago, but are recounted clearly and crisply with incredible detail of the hunt. That fact alone reveals the impact of hunting on all these storytellers, even so many years later. So in conclusion, I want to say thank you to all the contributors for these amazing stories of hunting in the Congo. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will listen again. Other podcasts and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Congo Kids Life Stories are also posted on Apple iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I will send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.